Chapter 4 Adept Veneratus Pecellus Sobek awoke from his meditative trance, greatly troubled by the changes he sensed in the shifting currents of the great Empyrean. It was dark within the small windowless chamber he occupied in the southern wing of Medina's main ecclesiarchy, Citadel Cathedral. But he had been blind for almost eighty years, ever since he had willingly sacrificed his sight during the ritual of binding his soul with that of the Divine Emperor, and as an astropath psyker, he now had little need of anything as crude as mere visual sight. He had served the Emperor well, linking his mind and the warp with those of his brother astropaths as they communicated with each other over the vast interstellar distances, but in recent years he had started to realise that his abilities were now slowly changing. All astropaths were occasionally gifted and cursed with fleeting images of the future, but the elusive talent of true precognition lay not only in understanding the meaning of such shadowy images as they flickered across the face of the warp, but also in being able to distinguish those that were real from those that were the misleading work of the deceitful demon things that inhabited the furthest reaches of the immaterium. Sobek reached out, unerringly finding and picking up the small box that he always knew to be there. In his mind's eye, his psychic senses saw him performing each action just before he did it, enabling him to move and operate in the physical world with far greater care and precision than any normal sighted human. He ran his index finger down the seal on top of the box, the container recognising the genetic signature of its owner and opening itself to allow him to remove its precious contents. A series of thinly cut cards made from a substance that felt like, but was not, a delicate bone slid out into his hand. The Imperial Tarot. Sobek laid the first of the blank-faced cards out before him on the prayer mat he was kneeling on his lips silently intoning the words of the invocation of blessed prophecy. He concentrated, focusing his inner sight, as he reached out with his mind into the warp again, searching through its dark depths for the bright, pure radiance that was the overpowering psychic presence of the master of mankind. It would be through this mystic commune with the emperor that Sobek would know the meaning of the troubling thoughts that had disturbed his meditations. He reached out, his hand hovering inches above the face of the card, as the priceless psychoactive material from which the ancient cards were constructed reached out to the warp-born power he was channeling through himself. Slowly, an image formed on the surface of the card, a single, baleful, staring eye. The Eye of Horus. The traitor, thought Sobek, gasping in shock. The card occurred frequently for all those consulting the Imperial Tarot here within the Gothic Sector, where the Imperium was at full-scale war with the followers of their heretic warmaster. But never before had he seen it come up as the first card drawn. It was a cursed card, auguring nothing but failure and disaster. Quickly he drew the rest of the cards, the face of each newly revealed card coming like a stab wound to the heart. The falling star reversed. Ill fortune descending from the heavens, the warp ascendant, change and flux. Beneficial, if preceded by any of the blessed Emperor Arcana cards, malign and demonic if preceded by any of the cursed Arcana, the angel Primarch, sorrow and sacrifice, great loss foretold. A sob of fear escaped from the astropath's lips, and he allowed the rest of the cards to fall unread from his hands, reaching for the bell rope that would bring running the young novice initiate granted to him as his personal servant. He would send the boy to alert the master of the chapel, who in turn would send urgent word to both the Governor Regent's palace and the office of the Cardinal Astral, here on Balatis. Sobek did not know it, but the terrible secret that had been revealed to him was already known to a small number of Adeptus Arbites. Soon, however, the dreadful burden of knowledge that they all shared would be known to millions.
Chapter 5 Open missile tubes! The five Imperial warships cruised through the void in a wide spearhead formation aimed dead centre at the heart of the enemy fleet. On cue, metres thick blast hatches ground open along the beaks of their heavily armoured prows, revealing the mouths of a series of ominous silo openings, burning gases flaring from each one as the missiles within powered up their launch thrusters. Launch torpedoes! Simultaneous flame bursts erupted from each opening as powerful engines, assisted by the launch tube's own gravity motors, roared into life, firing the hundred-metre-long missiles out of their silo tubes and into the vacuum of space. The torpedo missiles sped away at incredible velocity, their fast-burn plasma engines leaving a trail of burning, blinding white plasma energy in their wake. The aftershock of the torpedo launch rang through the hulls of the Imperial ships, a deep, rumbling shudder that ran through the length of their massive vessel, causing the sweating work crews of ratings to pause for a second in their tasks, many of them whispering oaths in both praise and fear to the awesome destructive power of the ship's machine spirit. Torpedoes launched and running confirmed the calm, authoritative voice of Master of Ordnance Remus Nida as the same rumbling tremor ran through the command deck of His Divine Majesty's ship, the Lord Solar Macarius. Leighton Semper stood in his captain's pulpit, watching the torpedo's progress on the data slate screen of his command lectern, imagining the missiles roaring through space towards their targets and the other four capital ships within the formation, Drakenfels, Tonnant, Scipion, and Graf Orlick. He knew that his fellow captains would all be doing the same, watching as their vessel's deadly payload sped towards the enemy. Five ships launching six missiles apiece, thirty torpedoes, closing on the enemy pack at a speed of tens of kilometres a second. Semper smiled imagining the panic amongst his counterparts aboard the enemy ships as they watched the wave of torpedo icons sweep across their surveyor screens towards them. Glancing at his command deck's own surveyor screens, he could already see the telltale energy spike reading that signified vessels powering up their main drives and engaging emergency manoeuvring thrusters as they attempted to get out of the path of the torpedo wave. So far, the Imperial Fleet's battle plan had gone as hoped, but now its ultimate success or failure depended on the next few moments. Missiles running true, spoke an ordnance servitor, communing with the simple machine minds of the torpedo's logic engines and reading and interpreting the data relayed back from the missile's guidance and surveyor systems. Enemy vessels are commencing evasive manoeuvres. Enemy carrier vessel, Lord Seth, launching attack craft. A defence screen of fighters to intercept the torpedo wave, commented Semper's second-in-command, Flag Lieutenant Hito Ulante. Standard anti-ordnance tactics, Mr. Ulante, Semper agreed. Nothing out of the ordinary, but let us see if they're expecting our next move also. He nodded to Nida, who stood expectantly, waiting on his captain's next orders. Mr. Nida, what is our launch status? Reloading torpedoes now, answered Nida, with typical dry efficiency. Our attack craft squadrons, Nemesis, Fadrake, Harbinger and Mantis are at full launch readiness, replied the craggy-faced Nida, not needing to consult the data slate presented to him by one of his junior ordnance officers. Storm and Hornet are in standby positions awaiting orders, and the remainder of our bomber and fighter squadrons are being prepped for second wave launch as we speak. I can give you forty Starhawks with fighter escort launched and burning hard vacuum within thirty seconds, and another three patchwork squadrons ready to go twenty minutes after that. Semper nodded in approval, unsurprised by his ordnance commander's efficiency. In the long and hard-fought months since the start of the Gothic War, the crew of the Macarius had undergone their bloody baptism of fire and were, their captain truly believed, a match for any other Imperial Navy crew throughout the whole of Battlefleet Gothic. 
Still, he thought, up until now their experience with the enemy had come as convoy escort battles against the so-called wolf pack, pirate marauders or long-range patrol encounters with single vessels or small squadron groups. This was the first time the Macarius had taken part in a fleet-sized action of this magnitude. Semper looked at his lectern, watching in fascination as the ship recognition codex symbols of the approaching enemy fleet crowded across the screen there. Thirty-four enemy vessels, the surveyor scanners confirmed, sixteen capital-class vessels and escorts protecting an invasion armada of eighteen troop carrier transports. A formidable force, and one that even the most experienced warship commander might hesitate to engage head-on. Helm, continue on course, he ordered. Mr. Nider, launch bomber squadrons and signal storm and hornet to stand by to engage the enemy's fighter strength. They must ensure that the torpedo wave reaches the enemy fleet. He paused, looking at the expectant faces of his assembled command deck officers, seeing in them the same keen intensity and rising sense of excitement that he himself felt. Make ready, gentlemen. Now we go to war. A heavy tremor ran through the fuselage of the Starhawk bomber as the first magno clamps began to disengage, separating it from its launch cradle. Milus Kaparian cast a cautious glance at the status runes on his console. The reassuring rows of green symbols told him that his craft had so far survived the often rigorous traumas of the pre-launch delivery system. Over the bomber's internal comnet, he could hear his crew go through the usual pre-launch system checks, as well as their own personal rituals. There was the murmuring machine-toned voices of tech-adapt Shanyin Ko and the four onboard servitors under his command, as they communed with each other in ways only the servants of the machine god could explain or understand. From the top gun turret came the barbaric-sounding chanting of Gunner First Class Daksha as he prayed to his ancestral gods in the incomprehensible native tongue of his homeworld. Kaparian neither knew nor cared whether Daksha's ancestor worship was in accordance with the strict orthodox edicts of the imperial faith. He was the best turret gunner that Kaparian had ever had, with sixteen enemy fighter kills to his credit, and if the spirits of Daksha's ancestors were indeed watching over him and guiding his aim as he believed, then Comparium was glad to have them aboard. Meanwhile, a stream of loud and impressive cursing sounded over the comlink, signalling that bombardier Georgie Kustrin was also going through his customary pre-mission preparations. A native of the Macarius's original home port world of Stranavar, Kustrin was a particularly skilled exponent of the well-known Straniverite ability to be able to curse in a long and increasingly virulent string of imaginative and highly detailed expletives without ever once repeating himself. Warning icons flashed red as the Starhawk suddenly dropped, releasing from the crane cradle that had lifted it up into the launch bay. For a few brief but truly sickening moments, the 300-ton bomber was in freefall, and then its fall was abruptly halted, powerful suspensor fields catching it and holding it in place mid-air within the launch bay. Suspensor fields operating, preparing to disengage from launch cradle, confirmed Maddock Tor from the cockpit seat beside Caparian, his warning, as usual, coming seconds too late. Despite himself, no matter how many times he had done it before, Caparian had still never fully resigned himself to that one moment when he had to put his faith in the launch bay's powerful but ancient suspensor field generators. Caparian still managed a weak smile at his co-pilot's customary joke, which was as much a part of their pre-launch preparations as any of the systems checks and tech rights. Together, Caparian and Tor carefully powered up the bomber's four wing-mounted engines. Knowing that the slightest drop in the suspensor field's integrity at this most crucial and dangerous part of the launch process would mean the bomber's complete destruction. The engines 
were soon operating at near full power, but the bomber was stationary within the launch bay, held immobile in the invisible but inexorable grip of the suspensor fields as the laws of physics fought against the launch bay's equally powerful inertial dampener fields. The bomber's entire fuselage shook under the strain, the bomber threatening to tear itself apart any second under the effects of the contradictory forces pulling and pushing at it. Brief seconds stretched out into an eternity as Caparian heard the countdown chimes broadcast over the cockpit's comnet link. And then, finally, the last chime sounded and suddenly, shockingly, the bomber was released from its suspenser field and was surging forward with incredible speed, its engines screaming in relief at being set free from the invisible forces that had held them in check. Caparian fought with the controls, aware of the wall of the launch bay, streaming past only a few narrow metres from his starboard wingtip, aware of the second craft following at an identical velocity close behind his own, aware of the launch exit opening ahead, aware of the fact that 18 other Starhawks would be fired out of surrounding launch bays at the same time, aware that the same thing was happening with 20 more Starhawks from the launch bays on the other side of the ship, aware that all of them were exiting at high speed from a carrier ship that was itself travelling at high velocity through space. Aware of all this, and the fact that the smallest mistake or miscalculation on the part of any one of the pilots would mean disaster. And then, there was only the blackness of space around them. Followed by the tell-tale pulling sensation, and a split second later, a rumbling shudder as the Imperial bomber passed through, in sequence, its carrier ship's gravity field and protective void shields. Glancing at an Auspex screen, Caparian saw the view from the rear tail-mounted turret of the vast ship of the Macarius already falling away into the distance behind them, and he felt the customary dual emotions familiar to any attack craft pilot. Relief at the completion of a successful launch, but also apprehension and awareness of the fact that he was now alone in the void and separated from the protection and safety of the giant carrier ship. A row of green icons lit up one by one on his command console. Eight, nine, ten. All bombers under his command had safely cleared the Macarius and were reporting all systems clear. Caparian activated a rune, opening up a comnet channel. Nemesis leader to Nemesis squadron, form up into attack formation. The threatening, sickle-winged shape of the swift death fighter cruised through the void. Starlight glinting off its black, diamond-hard, armoured hull. The sole occupant of its cockpit scanned the surrounding void, wire cables plugging into the empty sockets where his eyes had once been, feeding him tactical information direct from his fighter's onboard surveyor systems. Around him he sensed the rest of his squadron flying in a loose, crescent-shaped intercept pattern. Ahead of them was their mission objective, the bright target shapes of the oncoming enemy torpedo wave, and beyond that, the far more tempting series of secondary target shapes, the distinctive flying pattern and energy signals of an enemy bomber wave, approaching in attack formation and with fighter escorts, encased in ancient flight suit armour that had fused itself to his skin and enmeshed in cables and wiring that made his body just another component of his fighter craft. Pilot champion Vorton Krull cursed in barely restrained anger. Intercepting the torpedo wave was, he knew, vital in protecting the Chaos fleet from the enemy's initial attack. But there was little honour and challenge in the all-too-simple destruction of such lumbering and, crucially for Krull, crewless targets. There would be even greater challenge amongst the bomber formation, Krull knew, pitting his skill against those of the Starhawks pilots and gunners, dogfighting with their deadly fury interceptor escorts. And after that, when the torpedo and bomber attacks had been annihilated and the Imperium and Chaos fleets met in direct battle, there would be even finer sport after the Chaos fleet's inevitable victory. He could see it now, 
his swift death fighter swooping through the tangle of drifting wreckage and burning hulks that was all that remained of the Imperium fleet, his finely honed surveyor senses extended to their maximum limit, seeking and finding life-pod vessels floating amongst the debris. Inside would be survivors from the destroyed enemy warships, and Kroll relished the thought of their helpless terror as his fighter bore down on their doomed and unarmed escape craft. The target was only worth the taking, the Chaos Pilot Champion believed, if you could imagine the terrified death screams of the human cargo inside. Through his surveyor-enhanced senses, he could see the strong signal patterns of the torpedoes as they sped towards him through the void. He smiled, noticing the surprisingly high energy fluctuations thrown off by the torpedoes' imperfectly balanced power systems, a fact which would make the missiles all the more easy to lock onto and target with his fighter's weapon systems. Intercepting and destroying the torpedo wave would be even simpler now, and after that, his squadron would be free to seek out more rewarding targets. Enemy escort vessels are moving to protect their flanks. Capital ships are powering up void shields and weapon systems. Secondary bomber wave being loaded into launch bays. Countdown to launch in ten minutes. Enemy troop transports are commencing drop pod planetary assault. Estimate 200 plus drop pods deployed in the last five minutes. Semper listened in silence to the ongoing litany of reports from his junior officers as he studied the pattern of icon markers on the main surveyor screen, the screen's luminescence casting an eerie glow over his hawk-like features under the dim lighting on the Macarius's command deck. It took years to be able to decipher the ever-changing patterns and symbols as the command deck's servitor drones received and interpreted the streams of data from the ship's surveyor systems. But to an officer of Leoton Semper's experience, the complex array of machine code markings flashing across the surveyor screen was as clear and understandable as simple low Gothic script. Here he saw the icons representing the torpedo and enemy fighter waves move close towards each other, changing colour to an angry crimson in warning of their imminent and conflicting convergence. There he saw the threatening shapes of the enemy warships manoeuvre round to face the Imperial capital ship formation as it sped towards them. And, beyond the line of enemy warship icons lay the Imperial fleet's true objective, the bright cluster of troop transports, blinking alert symbols beside them, indicating that they had already commenced their dropship invasion of the Imperial world which the Macarius and its sister ships had been sent to protect. Again, Semper watched the twin converging icons of the torpedo and fighter waves, diminishing rows of tiny rune symbols counting down the rapidly shrinking distance between them. Soon, he thought to himself, soon they would know whether their opening gambit would succeed. Chapter 6 Elsewhere, another captain stood studying the tactical display on his command deck surveyor screen his attention fixed on one enemy vessel marker in particular. For half a day now, his vessel's gun batteries had been ceaselessly bombarding the surface of the world below. Now the providence of the warp had provided a target far greater than underground missile silos and cities full of cowering, terrified civilians. At last, the Macarius, breathed Bullus Cyril. Plague champion captain of the virulent, shuffling the tumour-swollen bulk of his body through the rich, fetid stew of the atmosphere of his vessel's command deck to closer inspect the image on the long-range auger screens. Yes, the vessel that destroyed our sister ship Contagion, if the propaganda lies of the enemy were to be believed confirmed his second-in-command, taking care not to tread on any of the litter of pet Nurgle spawn that swarmed in his captain's wake. Cyril studied the magnified image of the loyalist craft, seeing its launch bays open to disgorge a swarm of gull-winged bomber craft, seeing the cruiser move forward in battle formation along with the rest of the loyalist fleet. For four days, the Chaos Fleet had advanced through the Helios system, 
finding little evidence of the presence of the forces of the hated false emperor, other than a few brief but bloody skirmishes with lone scout vessels and marauding attack craft squadrons. In those four days, most of the system had been ruthlessly subdued. The defence monitor station at the system's outer edge had been the first to fall, overwhelmed and destroyed as the first of the Chaos warships emerged out of the warp jump point that the station was supposed to be guarding. Mining and industrial colonies on the system's two gas-giant planets were next to succumb, bombarded into submission as the Chaos fleet swept onward past them, heading into the system's core. Their target was Helia IV, an Imperium resource world, with a population of more than three billion. Perhaps those three billion supposed that their world merely was to be plundered, mused Cyril. The survivors emerging from hiding afterwards and praying to their weakling emperor in thanks as they watched the Chaos Reaver fleet leave orbit and head out of system towards its next target destination. If that was what they thought, he smiled to himself. Then how much anguish despair must they have felt as their astropath psychers and long-range surveyors detected the war-burst signatures of many more Chaos vessels, troop transports and their protecting escorts emerging out of the warp and following in the wake of the main war fleet. It was only then that the despoiler's intentions for Helia became clear to its terrified inhabitants. Invasion. The ruthless subjection of their world by the powers of Chaos. Inside the transports were the legions of chaos. Chaos marines and demon things, confined for centuries within the eye of terror and now impatient to be unleashed upon the servants of the false emperor. They were savage beastmen and degenerate human followers of the dark gods, eager only for the slaughter of their master's enemies, slave troops and monstrous mutant spawn creatures, fit only to be used as cannon fodder in the armies of chaos. Any who resisted would be mercilessly put to the sword, while the remainder of the world's population would be enslaved, put to work constructing fleets of more warships and troop transports. For the despoilers, battle fleets. The strongest amongst them, those who could actually survive the brutal realities of life, and what would soon be one of the despoilers' prison factory worlds, would be formed into slave troop regiments and herded aboard the newly constructed transports, ready to be taken on to the next doomed world to lie in the path of the Chaos Reaver fleets, leaving behind them the bone-scattered ruins of their dead world. Fear, Fort Cyril. Fear was the despoiler's main weapon in this war, and its tendrils spread deep into the minds of the inhabitants of every Imperium world within the Gothic sector. Fear that their world would be next to fall under the gaze of the despoiler, and fear of what fate the Chaos Warmaster had already decreed for them when he sent his fleets to darken the skies above their world. Helia III was the third such world to fall before this war fleet. The holds of many of the transports were crammed with the slave troop remnants of the populations of the two preceding conquests. But this was the first time that the Imperial Navy had appeared in any force to oppose them. Cyril and his fellow captains had resigned themselves to another simple but unsatisfying slaughter of the local in-system defence forces, its orbital defence platforms and slow, poorly armed system vessel gunship squadrons. And so it was with a thrill of anticipation that they greeted the sight of the Imperial Navy battle group that emerged from the warp to challenge the Chaos fleet as it made its final approach on the otherwise defenceless world. Despite his four centuries of service to the God of Decay, there was enough of the Imperium fleet officer still remaining in Cyril to recognise the feeling now growing within him. It was an old familiar feeling, one that the bosun instructors of the fleet naval academies tried hard to instil in the officer cadets in their charge. It was the thrill of anticipation, the relish of the challenge to come that every navy officer feels before battle. And also, sometimes, the satisfying knowledge that old scores and debts of honour were about to be settled, he thought, still studying the image of the Macarius. Moreau was a fine captain and a loyal servant of Grandfather Nurgle, slurred Sir, mucus bile bubbling in his pustule-swollen throat. His 
death and the destruction of one of the grandfather's vessels shall not go unavenged. Anomaly detected within the enemy torpedo wave, came the urgent warning from one of the tech priest surveyor seers, calling Cyril's attention back to the immediate realities of battle. There are additional ordnance class targets masked within the torpedo wave energy reading. Amic Kithar powered his fury interceptor forward, residue plasma energy splashing against his forward shields as he piloted the fighter craft through the kilometre-long backwash of the torpedo's missile. Around him, the rest of Storm Squadron followed him into the attack, emerging out of the energy wake of the torpedo wave that had so successfully concealed their approach from the enemy. Keitha's command flight, Zane, Vale, Altamir and Kapala, took up position around their leader, the squadron's other two flights completing the three-pronged attack formation. Fifteen fighter craft, a full-strength squadron, and nearby another fifteen belonging to Hornet Squadron. Thirty Imperial interceptors attacking in overwhelming force against an unprepared enemy. Keitha locked on to the first enemy target, his fingers closing on the firing triggers of his Fury's formidable armaments array. A stream of supercharged energy instantly spat out from the nose-mounted las cannons. The Battle of Helia Free had begun in earnest. Kroll's wingman exploded, transformed in the blink of an eye into an incandescent fireball that flickered briefly in the void and then was gone forever. Too late. Kroll's craft-joined senses saw the swarm of enemy fighters emerging out of cover from amongst the torpedo wave. Too late, he tried to evade the sharp daggers of Laz energy stabbing at him from out of the darkness. They struck against his fighter's armour, smashing it into broken shards and ripping through his starboard engine, one stray shot blinding him as it burnt through his forward surveyor systems. Unseeing and out of control, Kroll's crippled swift death tumbled through space and into the path of the oncoming torpedo wave. His soundless scream of rage was lost, as, seconds later, both he and his fighter craft were obliterated, smashed apart against the thick armoured nose cone of one of the juggernaut missiles. Semper watched as the enemy fighter formation icon faded off the surface of the surveyor screen. The Imperial attack wave closed on the Chaos fleet, and now nothing lay between it and its target. Semper's attention was caught by the urgent flashing of the torpedo wave marker. He looked to his master of ordnance. Targets acquired on all missiles, confirmed Nida. Impact imminent. Tens of thousands of kilometres ahead of the Macarius, the wave of torpedo missiles entered their final life cycle stage. Logic engines reaching out to find their targets. Crude but effective guidance systems engaged. Short life manoeuvring jets firing as the missile's machine mines made any necessary course changes towards the selected targets. The main drives flared into fiery life for the last time, expanding all remaining energy as they boosted the missile warheads towards their targets at increased velocity. Fear and panic spread like wildfire through the Chaos fleet as they witnessed their fighter screen's failure to intercept and destroy the torpedo wave. Parked in closely ranked and stationary orbit above Helia, the invasion fleet was the very model of the Imperial Navy tactician's definition of a target-rich environment. For every target a torpedo's logic engines failed to lock onto, there were another half-dozen to choose from. On the Chaos warships, gunnery officers, who had already been zeroing their weapons batteries in on the approaching Imperial fleet, frantically redialed new target coordinates into their gunnery cogitators, knowing it was already too late to retrain their lumbering gun sights on targets as small and fast-moving as torpedo missiles, especially at such close range. Turret gun crews fared better. Already alerted and manning weapon systems designed to fend off ordnance attacks, they stood ready to project a curtain of defensive fire into space around their vessels. 
Of the 30 torpedoes launched by the Imperium ships, 12 were to be destroyed by the Chaos Vessel's anti-ordnance defences before they could strike their targets. Most fortunate of all was the murder-class cruiser Violator, whose turret crews destroyed all three of the torpedoes that had targeted their vessel. There was particular panic aboard the Chaos Fleet's carrier vessels, Bomber and fighter squadrons already committed to supporting the dropship assault on Helia were being hurriedly recalled back to the defence of the orbiting fleet, while the few squadrons still aboard the carrier ships were being rushed into action, many of them launching without being fully prepared for combat. There was a special note of urgency aboard the Styx-class heavy cruiser Lord Seth, which had been targeted by five torpedoes, the missile's surveyor systems homing in on the strong energy and comnet signals emanating from the Chaos Fleet flagship. Scramble launched into action and given only a hurried pre-launch maintenance check, two of its Doomfire bombers collided in the launch tubes, the explosion from their full payloads roaring back into the flight decks and sweeping over the attack craft still lined up there and awaiting rearming and refueling. Promethium fuel reserves and ammunition stacks lying on the flight deck detonated in a growing chain reaction, destroying the ship's entire wing of starboard launch bays and dealing the Chaos flagship a crippling blow even before battle proper had been joined. Seeing their flagship stricken, many aboard the surrounding Chaos vessels mistakenly assumed it had been the target of a close-range torpedo attack from an undetected Imperium ship, and panic spread further into the Chaos ranks, as the thought that small but deadly torpedo ships such as the Cobra-class destroyer might already have infiltrated the fleet defences and be hunting undetected amongst them. The first actual torpedo strike occurred on the outer fringes of the fleet perimeter, two of the Macarius's torpedoes striking toward a chaos ship that had foolishly or bravely moved forward away from the main body of the fleet group, instantly singling itself out as a target for the missile's questing surveyor senses. Whether it was trying to escape or sacrifice itself to protect the troop transports behind it, was something those intently watching from aboard the Macarius's command deck would never know. Target is an enemy escort vessel, probably one of their iconoclast class of destroyers, Nida told his captain. Reading the information from the complex array of machine code icons flashing across the surveyor screens. They're opening fire with their defence turrets. Eight, one torpedo's gone, the other torpedo's still closing. Its warhead has just achieved critical mass. A bright energy flare blossomed on Semper's lectern screen, temporarily overwhelming and dispelling the other data scrolling across the vid display. Semper looked up, looking through the command deck's viewing bays to see a matching explosion burst light up the vacuum of space ahead of them. As the torpedo warhead smashed through the Chaos ship's hull and detonated amongst its engine systems, breaching the walls of the Generarium plasma reactors and setting off a chain reaction explosion that completely vaporised the enemy vessel. The explosion, an expanding cloud of superheated burning plasma energy, briefly flared like a second sun against the blackness of space. But all around Semper saw glittering constellations of other explosions and energy bursts, evidence of the fleet-sized space battle now taking place all around them. In rapid succession, the rest of the torpedoes lashed into the ranks of the Chaos Fleet with devastating results. Anti-ordnance gunners aboard the Lord Seth succeeded in destroying the warhead of one of the torpedoes targeted at it. However, the success was to be short-lived. Driven onwards by its powerful thrust engines, the intact main body of the torpedo still struck the ship, shearing away one of the massive lance turrets that studied the heavy cruiser's spine. The power conduits to the turret's weapon systems failed to close, and a fountain of burning plasma pumped up direct from the ship's generarium core, erupting geyser-like from the ship's upper hull, diverting vital energy away from other weapon systems. 
The anti-ordnance turrets suddenly fell silent, and their gunnery crews were helpless to stop two more torpedoes, slamming into the Lord Seth seconds later. On the remaining portside launch decks, frantic pilots and ground crews raced against time to ready their swift deaths and doom fires for launch as a series of explosions ripped through the stricken ship's interior. Free of the troop transports, crudely constructed by unskilled slave labour and little more than glorified cattle trucks fitted with warp engines, took a torpedo hit apiece and were vaporised, killing the thousands of chaos troops still aboard them. Down on the surface of Helia, the odds shifted that much slightly back in favour of the hard-pressed Helia defence forces as they grimly fought against the seemingly never-ending tide of chaos troops now dropping out of the skies to attack their world. The iconoclast escort destroyer, Forsworn, was struck aft by a torpedo. The explosion destroying its air recycling plant and igniting an oxygen fire that swept through the ship's interior compartments. Those that survived the fire were doomed to a slow death by asphyxiation, sealed inside airtight compartments and praying for a rescue that would never come. The murder-class cruiser Pagan Voyager suffered a direct hit to its command tower the blast ripping upwards through deck after deck within the armoured blockhouse and killing everyone present on the bridge, including the captain and flag lieutenant. Suddenly robbed of almost its entire senior officer cadre, and with its internal comnet also disabled by the loss of the command deck, the pagan Voyager would take little further part in the Battle of Helia Free as its junior officers strove to bring order to the various out-of-contact sections of the ship, eventually choosing discretion over valour and retreating from the conflict altogether. Throughout the Chaos Armada, wounded ships burned and bled their atmosphere and energy lifeblood out into the cold vacuum. But, despite the damage caused by the Imperial torpedo attack, the battle's final outcome was by no means assured. Chaos warships manoeuvred for position, swinging round to bring lance turrets and weapons batteries to bear on the oncoming Imperium fleet. The Imperial ships were closing rapidly, but the enemy fleet was still out of range of their own forward-firing batteries. Knowing that the enemy's firepower had a longer reach than their own guns, the Imperial line braced itself for the Chaos fleet's reply. The void between the two fleets was filled with bright, rainbow displays of Laz fire, roaring plasma comet trails, and the thick, iridescent streams of lance beam energy. An Imperial Cobra destroyer escort, caught too far out of position ahead of the main body of the fleet, exploded apart as an arcing beam of Lance fire passed over it, cutting through it in one lethal sweep. Las beams, energy blasts and missile volleys impacted against overloading void shields, penetrating through to strike at the pitted and dented skins of ancient and battle-scarred armoured hulls. The prow of the Tonnant burst apart as probing las beams found a weak point in its adamantium shell. Drilling through it to find and detonate a newly loaded torpedo missile sitting in its launch silo. The back blast blew the sealed 17-ton silo door off its mountings, a wave of fire sweeping out into the eight-deck high loading chamber and back further along the wide rail-tracked tunnel from where the torpedo missiles were brought up from the ship's magazine. Stricken, the Lunar-class cruiser fell out of line, its sister ships leaving it behind to fend for itself as its officers and crew desperately fought to contain the conflagration burning through the ship and to prevent a catastrophic magazine explosion. On the bridge of the Macaria, Semper stood his ground, feeling the ship sway under him as it was buffeted by the blast impacts against its void shields and armour. The Macarius was equipped as standard with heavy blast shields, which closed over its viewing bays during combat, but Semper had ordered his vessel into battle with blast shields open, reasoning that a few extra feet of titanium steel armour would make little difference to their chances of survival if the command deck took a direct hit, 
preferring instead to see something of the enemy and the current disposition of the battle with his own eyes, rather than merely as an array of icons and symbols on a surveyor screen. Looking out, he saw a vision of hellish beauty, explosions and firebursts blooming against the black void. Warships, vast and powerful, moving forward with ponderous majesty. Over the open fleet-wide comnet came the voices from those ships, sounding weak and insignificant in comparison to the grand scale of events happening around them. The Lord Seth, its defence turrets are dead. Van Dyer's oath. If you've got any torpedoes loaded, use them now. Nemesis leader to Macarius. We're through the enemy's forward picket line, or what's left of it, commencing attack run on the troop transports. Enemy fighter activity disorganized, but still fairly intense. It'd be good to see some friendly furies up here with us, Macarius. Vanguard destroyer squadron to main group. That marauder class protecting their far flank is drifting out of position. Looks like it's taken a hit to the command tower. There's a path opened up for us, clear through to those damned transports, requesting support fire from any available capital ships. Graf Orlock, to battle group. Tonit's gone. We're out here alone on the port flank and taking heavy fire, requesting permission to withdraw and recharge void shield generators. Von Blatcher, you yellow bastard, I don't care how high your blue blood family connections in Battlefleet Command go, replied an angry voice over the Comnet channel, momentarily drowning out all the other radio traffic. You withdraw from action now and I'll personally take great pleasure in hunting you down and destroying both you and that junker heap you call a warship. Semper recognised the voice of Erwin Ramus, captain of the Gothic-class cruiser Drakenfels. Even over the comnet static, the mechanical rasp in Ramus's voice was still clearly detectable. Ramus was a battlefleet Gothic legend, the sole survivor of an Eldar pirate torpedo attack that wiped out his entire command deck crew, his crippled body maintained by Adeptus Mechanicus' cyber devices, what was left of Ramus was confined within an armoured strategium shell somewhere deep within his ship. However, despite the damage to his body, the wily old veteran's command abilities and taste for the thrill of battle clearly remained undiminished. Semper suppressed an inappropriate smile, not wishing to be seen to laugh openly at a brother captain in front of the Macarius' bridge crew. That said, Titus von Blotcher was a notoriously vainglorious fool who owed his captaincy of the Graf Orlick solely to the fact that he belonged to one of the lesser branches of the Ravensburg family line and was hence a distant but acknowledged relative of Lord Admiral Cornelius Ravensburg, commander of Battlefleet Gothic. Only Ramus, a Battlefleet legend with forty years' experience in the captain's chair, could speak like that to one of the Lord Admiral's relatives and hope to escape free from any kind of censure afterwards. Drakenfels to Macarius, called Ramus. What do you say, Semper? Shall we show this faint-hearted blue blood how a true captain in his divine majesty's imperial navy behaves? Lead the way, Drakenfels. Macarius will join you replied Semper, looking expectantly towards his helm crew, catching the nervous and apprehensive glances that passed between many of his junior officers. Hito Alante stepped forward, adding his voice to that of his captains, daring any of the doubters on the command deck to challenge their dual authority. After all, if a vessel's rightful, emperor-chosen captain gave an order, and his second-in-command concurred with that order, then what reason would any loyal servant of the emperor have to argue otherwise? no matter how near suicidal that order seem. Olanti's hand rested on the hilt of his sheathed sabre, and nearby, the giant, thuggish-looking petty officer that Olante seemed to have adopted as his personal bodyguard, stiffened to attention, alert to any potential threat against his patron officer. Helm, continue full ahead. Match and meet the current speed and course of the Drakenfels, ordered Olante in his characteristic, clipped, Howave-world aristocratic accent. Generarium, channel all available power to the forward void shields. 
Gunnery Control, prepare to fire twin broadsides as soon as we are in range of any available enemy target. Ordnance, the captain wants a full torpedo spread loaded and ready to launch, and he wants them now. The young flag lieutenant stepped back, watching alertly as he ensured that his captain's orders were being correctly carried out. Semper studied the sharp-minded and keenly ambitious Necromunda noble, becoming increasingly aware of just how able an officer Olante was. He knew that Alante would go far and was willing to take the Order of the Gothic Star Cluster pinned to the breast of his own tunic front that Alante would finish this war with a captaincy of his own. Assuming he or any of us survive that long, he reminded himself, thinking of the grim news of the latest tallies of losses, defeats and hard-fought and narrowly won holding actions that arrived almost daily from all points throughout the sector. Assuming any of us even live for the next hour or so, he fought further, looking out the viewing bay at the scene beyond, as the awkward but impressive bulk of the Drakenfells thundered ahead towards the enemy battle line. A second later, Semper felt the increased vibration of his own vessel's engines as they pushed the Macarius forward to join its sister ship. Together, the two cruisers rumbled forwards into the face of the enemy's guns, renewing the impetus of the faltering Imperial attack and leading the formation straight towards the centre of the Chaos fleet. There you go. Another part done. The other part will be coming soon. Thank you to everybody supporting the channel. I've, uh... You see, I've got all, I can do all the fancy stuff again. I've got my old computer back. <laughs> thank you all for watching. Thank you all for supporting the channel. Really appreciate it. Uh, we're, we're steaming ahead. We're almost, um, I'd say about 40, mm, about 40% through this. We're nearly, we're nearly at the halfway point. By the end of the next one, we'll be over the halfway point. I hope you are enjoying it. This is a classic. And uh, thank you to everybody uh, for the comments and the likes. If you can do that for me, that'd be fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate that. It really helps. And subscribe as well. Um, and all that. And share if you know anyone who you think might like this. Uh, I'll be doing some other stuff soon as well. Lots of stuff coming up. Blackstone Fortress lore is coming up. And reviews of some of the books. I've got another couple of reviews of some more new books that I've uh, managed to get through. I've been catching up on things. And uh, then we're going to be moving on to... Yeah, just more stuff. More stuff. All the stuff is coming. Uh, for the moment, as soon as we get through this, you'll, you'll see us... Well, uh, that's for the future. That's for the future. Things are coming. Thank you all again. And like I said, please do like the video, subscribe, and uh, let me know what you think. Uh, I really appreciate that. And that all really helps with the algorithm, and that's great. And uh, yeah, I'll see you again soon. And again, thank you to everybody's names, as you can see by here. Thank you all for being supporters of the channel. If your name isn't on here now, uh, it will be. It's just because there's a bit of a lag between when I make these and when they go out and blah, 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 blah. But thank you all. If you'd like to support the channel, you can use any of the links in the description you know, to help or become a channel member on YouTube, whatever. But I really appreciate it. I'm going to be back soon. Thank you all very much again. And uh, yeah, see you later for the next one, which will be within a few days of this one coming out, hopefully. See you later. Bye-bye.